This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. All Things Considered by G. K. Chesterton Section 8 Science and Religion in these days we are accused of attacking science because we want to be scientific surely there is not any undue respect to our doctor in saying that he is our doctor not our priest or our wife or ourself it is not the business of the doctor to say that we must go to a watering place it is his affair to say that certain results of health will follow if we do go to a watering place after that obviously it is for us to judge physical science is like simple addition it is either infallible or it is false to mix science up with philosophy is only to produce a philosophy that has lost all its ideal value and a science that has lost all its practical value i want my private physician to tell me whether this or that food will kill me it is for my private philosopher to tell me whether I ought to be killed. I apologize for stating all these truisms, but the truth is that I have just been reading a thick pamphlet written by a mass of highly intelligent men who seem never to have heard of any of these truisms in their lives. Those who detest the harmless writer of this column are generally reduced, in their final ecstasy of anger, to calling him brilliant which has long ago in our journalism become a mere expression of contempt. But I am afraid even this disdainful phrase does me too much honor. I am more and more convinced that I suffer not from a shiny or showy impertinence, but from a simplicity that verges upon imbecility. I think more and more that I must be very dull, and that everybody else in the modern world must be very clever. I have just been reading this important compilation sent to me in the name of a number of men for whom I have a high respect, and called New Theology and Applied Religion, and it is literally true that I have read through whole columns of the things without knowing what the people were talking about. Either they must be talking about some black and bestial religion in which they were brought up and of which I never even heard or else they must be talking about some blazing and blinding vision of God which they have found, which I have never found, and which, by its very splendor, confuses their logic and confounds their speech. But the best instance I can quote of the thing is in connection with this matter of the business of physical science on the earth, of which I have just spoken. The following words are written over the signature of a man whose intelligence I respect, and I cannot make head or tail of them. When modern science declared that the cosmic process knew nothing of a historical event corresponding to a fall, but told, on the contrary, the story of an incessant rise in the scale of being, it was quite plain that the Pauline scheme, I mean the argumentative process of Paul's scheme of salvation, had lost its very foundation. For was not that foundation the total depravity of the human race inherited from their first parents? But now there was no fall, 
there was no total depravity or imminent danger of endless doom, and the basis gone, the superstructure followed. It is written with earnestness, and in excellent English, it must mean something, but what can it mean? How could physical science prove that man is not depraved? You do not cut a man open to find his sins. You do not boil him until he gives forth the unmistakable green fumes of depravity. How could physical science find any trace of a moral fall? What traces did the writer expect to find? Did he expect to find a fossil Eve with a fossil apple inside her? Did he suppose that the ages would have spared for him a complete skeleton of Adam attached to a slightly faded fig leaf? The whole paragraph which I have quoted is simply a series of inconsequent sentences, all quite untrue in themselves and all quite irrelevant to each other. Science never said that there could have been no fall. There might have been ten falls, one on top of the other, and the thing would have been quite consistent with everything we know from physical science. Humanity might have grown morally worse for millions of years, for millions of centuries, and the thing would in no way have contradicted the principle of evolution. Men of science, not being raving lunatics, never said that there had been an incessant rise in the scale of being for an incessant rise would mean a rise without any relapse or failure, and a physical evolution is full of relapse and failure. There were certainly some physical falls. There may have been any number of moral falls. So that, as I have said, I am honestly bewildered as to the meaning of such passages as this, in which the advanced person writes that because geologists know nothing about the fall, therefore any doctrine of depravity is untrue because science has not found something which obviously it could not find, therefore something entirely different, the psychological sense of evil is untrue. You might sum up this writer's argument abruptly, but accurately, in some way like this. We have not dug up the bones of the archangel Gabriel, who presumably had none, therefore little boys left to themselves will not be selfish. To me it is all wild and whirling, as if a man said, the plumber can find nothing wrong with our piano, so I suppose my wife does love me. I am not going to enter here into the real doctrine of original sin, or that probably false version of it which the new theology writer calls the doctrine of depravity. But whatever else the worst doctrine of depravity may have been, it was a product of spiritual conviction. It had nothing to do with remote physical origins. Men thought mankind wicked because they felt wicked themselves. If man feels wicked, I cannot see why he should suddenly feel good because somebody tells him that his ancestors once had tails. Man's primary purity and innocence may have dropped off with his tail, for all anybody knows. The only thing we all know about that primary purity and innocence is that we have not got it. Nothing can be, in the strictest sense of the word, more comic than to set so shadowy a thing as the conjectures made by the vaguer anthropologists about primitive man against so solid a thing as the human sense of sin. By its nature, the evidence of Eden is something that one cannot find. By its nature, the evidence of sin is something that one cannot help finding. Some statements I disagree with, others I do not understand. 
If a man says, I think the human race would be better if it abstained totally from fermented liquor, I quite understand what he means, and how his view could be defended. If a man says, I wish to abolish beer, because I am a temperance man, his remark conveys no meaning to my mind. It is like saying, I wish to abolish roads, because I am a moderate walker. If a man says, I am not a Trinitarian, I understand. But if he says, as a lady once said to me, I believe in the Holy Ghost in a spiritual sense, I go away dazed. In what other sense could one believe in the Holy Ghost? And I am sorry to say that this pamphlet of progressive religious views is full of baffling observations of that kind. What can people mean when they say that science has disturbed their view of sin? What sort of view of sin can they have had before science disturbed it? Did they think it was something to eat? When people say that science has shaken their faith in immortality, what do they mean? Do they think that immortality was a gas? Of course the real truth is that science has introduced no new principle into the matter at all. A man can be a Christian to the end of the world for the simple reason that a man could have been an atheist from the beginning of it. The materialism of things is on the face of things. It does not require any science to find it out. A man who has lived and loved falls down dead, and the worms eat him. That is materialism, if you like. That is atheism, if you like. If mankind has believed in spite of that, it can believe in spite of anything. But why our human lot is made any more hopeless, because we know the names of all the worms who eat him, or the names of all the parts of him that they eat, is, to a thoughtful mind, somewhat difficult to discover. My chief objective to these semi-scientific revolutionists is that they are not at all revolutionary. They are the party of platitude. They do not shake religion. Rather, religion seems to shake them. They can only answer the great paradox by repeating the truism. THE METHUSELITE I saw, in a newspaper photograph the other day, the following entertaining and deeply philosophical incident. A man was enlisting as a soldier at Portsmouth, and some form was put before him to be filled up, common, I suppose, to all such cases, in which was, among other things, an inquiry about what was his religion. With an equal and ceremonial gravity, the man wrote down the word, Methuselite. Whoever looks over such papers must, I should imagine, have seen some rum religion in his time, unless the army is going to the dogs. But with all his specialist knowledge he could not place Methuselism among what Bossuet calls the variations of Protestantism. He felt a vervid curiosity about the tenets and tendencies of the sect, and asked the soldier what it meant. The soldier replied that it was his religion to live as long as he could. Now, considered as an incident in the religious history of Europe, that answer of that soldier was worth more than a hundred cartloads of quarterly and monthly and weekly and daily papers discussing religious problems and religious books. Every day the daily paper reviews some new philosopher who has some new religion, and there is not in the whole two thousand words of the whole two columns one word as witty or as wise as that word Methuselite. The whole meaning of literature is simply to cut a long story short, 
That is why our modern books of philosophy are never literature. That soldier had in him the very soul of literature. He was one of the great phrase-makers of modern thought, like Victor Hugo or Disraeli. He found one word that defines the paganism of today. Henceforward, when modern philosophers come to me with their new religions, and there is always a kind of queue of them waiting all the way down the street, I shall anticipate their circumlocutions and be able to cut them short with a single inspired word. One of them will begin with the new religion, which is based upon that primordial energy in nature. Methuselahite, I shall say sharply, good morning. Human life, another will say, human life, the only ultimate sanctity, freed from creed and dogma. Methuselahite, I shall yell, out you go. My religion is the religion of joy, a third will explain. A bald old man with a cough and tinted glasses, the religion of physical pride and rapture, and Methuselahite, I shall cry again, and I shall slap him boisterously on the back and he will fall down. Then a pale young poet with serpentine hair will come and say to me, as one did only the other day, Moods and impressions are the only realities, and these are constantly and wholly changing. I could hardly, therefore, define my religion. I can, I should say, somewhat sternly. Your religion is to live a long time, and if you stop here a moment longer, you won't fulfill it. A new philosophy generally means in practice the praise of some old vice. We have had the sophist who defends cruelty and calls it masculinity. We have had the sophist who defends profligacy and calls it the liberty of the emotions. We have had the sophist who defends idleness and calls it art. It will almost certainly happen, it can almost certainly be prophesied, that in this Saturnalia of sophistry, there will at some time or other arise a sophist who desires to idealize cowardice. And when we are once in this unhealthy world of mere wild words, what a vast deal there would be to say for cowardice. Is not life a lovely thing and worth saving, the soldier would say as he ran away? Should I not prolong the exquisite miracle of consciousness, the householder would say as he hid under the table? As long as there are roses and lilies on the earth, shall I not remain here? would come the voice of the citizen from under the bed. It would be quite as easy to defend the coward as a kind of poet and mystic as it has been in many recent books to defend the emotionalists as a kind of poet and mystic, or the tyrant as a kind of poet and mystic. When that last grand sophistry and morbidity is preached in a book on a platform, you may depend upon it there will be a great stir in its favor that is a great stir among the little people who live among books and platforms. There will be a new great religion, the religion of Methuselahism, with pomps and priests and altars. Its devout crusaders will vow themselves in thousands with a great vow to live long. But there is one comfort, they won't. For indeed the weakness of this worship of mere natural life, which is a common enough creed today, is that it ignores the paradox of courage and fails in its own aim. As a matter of fact, no man would be killed quicker than the Methuselahites. The paradox of courage is that a man must be a little careless of his life, even in order to keep it. And in the very case I have quoted, 
we may see an example of how little the theory of Methuselahism really inspires our best life. For there is one riddle in that case which cannot easily be cleared up. If it was the man's religion to live as long as he could, why on earth was he enlisting as a soldier? Spiritualism I have received a fancy letter from a gentleman who is very indignant at what he considers my flippancy in disregarding or degrading spiritualism. I thought I was defending spiritualism, but I am rather used to being accused of mocking the thing that I set out to justify. My fate in most controversies is rather pathetic. It is an almost invariable rule that the man with whom I don't agree thinks I am making a fool of myself, and the man with whom I do agree thinks I am making a fool of him. There seems to be some sort of idea that you are not treating a subject properly if you eulogize it with fantastic terms or defend it by grotesque examples. Yet a truth is equally solemn, whatever figure or example its exponent adopts. It is an equally awful truth that four and four make eight, whether you reckon the thing out in eight onions or eight angels, or eight bricks or eight bishops, or eight minor poets, or eight pigs. Similarly, if it be true that God made all things, that grave fact can be asserted by pointing at a star or waving an umbrella. But the case is stronger than this. There is a distinct philosophical advantage in using grotesque terms in a serious discussion. I think seriously, on the whole, that the more serious is the discussion, the more grotesque should be the terms. For this, as I say, there is an evident reason. For a subject is really solemn and important in so far as it applies to the whole cosmos, or to some great spheres and cycles of experience, at least. So far as a thing is universal, it is serious, and so far as a thing is universal, it is full of comic things. If you take a small thing, it may be entirely serious. Napoleon, for instance, was a small thing, and he was serious. The same applies to microbes. If you isolate a thing, you may get the pure essence of gravity. But if you take a large thing, such as the solar system, it must be comic, at least in parts. The germs are serious because they kill you. But the stars are funny because they give birth to life, and life gives birth to fun. If you have, let us say, a theory about a man, and you can only prove it by talking about Plato and George Washington, your theory may be a quite frivolous thing. But if you can prove it, by talking about the butler or the postman, then it is serious because it is universal. So far from it being irrelevant to use silly metaphors on serious questions, it is one's duty to use silly metaphors on serious questions. It is the test of one's seriousness. It is the test of a responsible religion or theory whether it can take examples from pots and pans and boots and butter tubs it is the test of a good philosophy whether you can defend it grotesquely. It is the test of a good religion whether you can joke about it. When I was a very young journalist, I used to be irritated at a peculiar habit of printers, a habit which most persons of a tendency similar to mine would have probably noticed also. It goes along with the fixed belief of printers that to be a rationalist is the same thing as to be a nationalist. I mean the printer's tendency to turn the word cosmic into the word comic. 
It annoyed me at the time, but since then I have come to the conclusion that the printers were right. The democracy is always right. Whatever is cosmic is comic. Moreover, there is another reason that makes it almost inevitable that we should defend grotesquely what we believe seriously. It is that all grotesqueness is itself intimately related to seriousness. Unless a thing is dignified, it cannot be undignified. Why is it funny that a man should sit down suddenly in the street? There is only one possible or intelligent reason, that man is the image of God. It is not funny that anything else should fall down, only that a man should fall down. No one sees anything funny in a tree falling down. No one sees a delicate absurdity in a stone falling down. No man stops in the road and roars with laughter at the sight of the snow coming down. The fall of thunderbolts is treated with some gravity. The fall of roofs and high buildings is taken seriously. It is only when a man tumbles down that we laugh. Why do we laugh? Because it is a grave religious matter. It is the fall of man. Only man can be absurd, for only man can be dignified. The above, which occupies the great part of my article, is a parenthesis. It is time that I return to my choleric correspondent, who rebuked me for being too frivolous about the problem of spiritualism. My correspondent, who is evidently an intelligent man, is very angry with me indeed. He uses the strongest language. He says I remind him of a brother of his, which seems to open an abyss or vista of infamy. The main substance of his attack resolves itself into two propositions. First, he asks me what right I have to talk about spiritualism at all, as I admit I have never been to a seance. Well, this is all very well, but there are a good many things to which I have never been, but I have not the smallest intention of leaving off talking about them. I refuse, for instance, to leave off talking about the Siege of Troy. I decline to be mute in the matter of the French Revolution. I will not be silenced on the late indefensible assassination of Julius Caesar. If nobody has any right to judge of spiritualism except the man who has been to a seance, the results, logically speaking, are rather serious. It would almost seem as if nobody had any right to judge of Christianity who had not been to the first meeting at Pentecost, which would be dreadful. I conceive myself capable of forming my opinion of spiritualism without seeing spirits, just as I have formed my opinion of the Japanese war without seeing the Japanese, or my opinion of the American millionaires without, thank God, seeing an American millionaire. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed, a passage which some have considered as a prophecy of modern journalism. But my correspondent's second objection is more important. He charges me with actually ignoring the value of communication, if it exists, between this world and the next. I do not ignore it, but I do say this, that a different principle attaches to investigation in this spiritual field from investigation in any other. If a man baits a line for fish, the fish will come, even if he declares there are no such things as fishes. If a man limes a twig for birds, the birds will be caught, even if he thinks it superstitious to believe in birds at all. But a man cannot bait a line for souls. 
a man cannot lime a twig to catch gods. All wise schools have agreed that this latter capture depends to some extent on the faith of the capturer. So it comes to this. If you have no faith in the spirits, your appeal is in vain. And if you have, is it needed? If you do not believe, you cannot. If you do, you will not. That is the real distinction between investigation in this department and investigation in any other. The priest calls to the goddess for the same reason that a man calls to his wife, because he knows she is there. If a man kept on shouting out very loud the single word Maria, merely with the object of discovering whether, if he did it long enough, some woman of that name would come and marry him, he would be more or less in the position of the modern spiritualist. The old religionist cried out for his God. The new religionist cries out for some God to be his. The whole point of religion, as it has hitherto existed in the world, was that you knew all about your gods, even before you saw them, if indeed you ever did. Spiritualism seems to me absolutely right on all its mystical side. The supernatural part of it seems to me quite natural. The incredible part of it seems to me obviously true. But I think it so far dangerous or unsatisfactory that it is in some degree scientific. It inquires whether its gods are worth inquiring into. A man of a certain age may look into the eyes of his lady love to see that they are beautiful. But no normal lady will allow that young man to look into her eyes to see whether they are painted. The same vanity and idiosyncrasy has been generally observed in gods. Praise them or leave them alone. Do not look for them unless you know they are there. Do not look for them unless you want them. It annoys them very much. End of section 8